to First Up, it's Rāpare, Thursday the 6th of October, Kona Trubrajaho. Coming up, UK Prime Minister Liz Truss pledges to get the country through its current economic turmoil. Our Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson joins us to discuss the better-than-expected state of the government's books. A major new study has raised serious concerns about the safety of our national game. We hear from the partner of All Black, Carl Heyman, about his struggles living with dementia at the age of just 42. Carl's played 440 professional games. That doesn't include the non-professional ones or the training. And you think, well, of course there's going to be a consequence of your little squidgy brain is getting whacked against your skull on an 11-month-a-year basis. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Trubridge in for Nathan again today. We begin this morning in the UK where Prime Minister Liz Truss has made her keynote address to the Tory party conference and with me now from London is our correspondent Henry Riley. Uh, Morena Henry, what was the thrust of the Prime Minister's speech uh, this morning our time? Hiya, Nick. Um, so I've just come back from Birmingham, which is where the Prime Minister, as you say, has been speaking. I was in the room, so I got a sense of the sort of atmosphere uh, that went down. And it was it was very mixed. So, you know, Liz Truss has had a very difficult few days, a difficult week uh, in particular. She's had to U-turn over one of her major economic policies, which was uh, abolishing the top rate of tax in the UK. If you earn uh, over £50,000, it'd be... It'd be um, 45p on every pound you earn over that she was going to abolish that and uh, put it back down to 40p so that was very controversial and so controversial in fact that she u-turned on the first day of tory conference on the monday morning the chancellor uh, quasi quarting was doing the morning round and announced that the government had u-turned so she had to claw it back by this stage um and there are mixed reports on how she did. She was very on message, as you would expect. You know, she had obviously rehearsed this speech numerous times. She said that the UK needed to get through, quote, stormy days. And she said they're going to focus on growth, growth and growth. So it's very clear that her main priority is getting growth back into the economy. We've had a very stagnant economy, particularly over the last 14 years in the UK. And that is at the top of her agenda. There were also some suggestion that there was divisions with her Chancellor, Quasi Kwarteng, who I referenced earlier. Uh, that was quelled by, you know, put to bed by her. She was saying that, no, we are absolutely in lockstep was the word she used. Uh, but she did acknowledge, you know, we've had a pretty difficult economic situation in the UK with the pound's value. Uh, against the dollar really collapsing at some points and, you know, the gilt markets in the UK reacting very badly, which is essentially how the government borrows money. Uh, and she said there would be disruption by her policies. But uh, all, all in all, her thrust was about the economic situation and uh, and trying to appeal to the party base, which she did. It does seem like, Henry, the whole conference is, at least watching it on the television back here, an exercise in some ways of of saving face, really. Uh, you mentioned Mr Kwarteng's speech on the Monday, our time, and Liz Truss following up, trying to put a positive spin on things despite a fairly rocky start. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, she she repeatedly said, and, I, you know, this quote's very interesting, she said the status quo is not an option. So she's very clear that what she needs to do is something completely different to what we've seen uh 
before. You know, it's it's been a difficult few days for her, as I say. In, in particular, during the speech, she had it very difficult. She's not known. I mean, what's interesting, Nick, is I was in the room last year when Boris Johnson delivered his address. And you can say what you like about Boris Johnson, and everyone has a view on Boris Johnson. But when he walked into that room, he was treated like a rock star. He was, you know, there was applause. It was, it was, it was like a rock star had entered into the room. With Liz Truss, it was very awkward. There were awkward. Uh, she's not the best orator, which she does concede herself. There were awkward pauses where the audiences didn't know whether to collapse or not. She, you know, delivered some lines very str- in a sort of strange manner where people didn't know. I think she was slightly thrown when there were protesters, uh, environmental protesters from Greenpeace, were shouting at her halfway through and she had to deal with that and in many ways that actually got the audience more inside because if there's one thing that unites Tory party members it's opposition to groups like that and uh, she was very quick to criticize that group saying they're part of an anti-growth coalition so uh, it's quite clear that Mm. the anti-growth coalition as she puts it they're the new enemies for this government. Mm. And you mentioned delivering some lines that were perhaps slightly awkward, but did she deliver any new policies? Did she announce any new policies, Henry, to sort of, I suppose, uh, combat the, the economic situation in Britain? The, the honest answer, Nick, is no, she didn't. Um, and the reason is she's in a very difficult situation at the moment. We've had at the start of the conference two uh, former cabinet ministers, people who were in post when Boris Johnson was prime minister um they were absolutely slating her for for this u-turn and they in fact put the pressure on uh, for her to make this u-turn but the, the actual reality of it is she does not necessarily have a majority of tory mps to get her policies through we saw this with the controversial u-turn earlier in the week she has to be very careful now the prime minister liz truss about what she announces and what can actually get through the house of commons so i don't think it was a mistake that she didn't uh, announce any new policies i think she's starting to realize quite how uphill that the target is uh, that the task is going to be for for her prime ministership uh, but it was all sort of loose slogans on things like the energy crisis on things like the economy and as uh, she said three times her her view on growth thanks henry henry riley joining us there uh, he's just been at the conservative party conference in birmingham thanks for your time as always henry god he's good isn't he we love having him uh, right, we're going to move to uh, Florida now. A week after Hurricane Ian decimated communities there, the search for survivors grows more desperate by the minute. There are at least 101 storm-related deaths in the state, and some areas that got the worst of Ian have now been deemed unlivable. CNN's Randy Kay reports. This is our first look from the ground at Fort Myers Beach. Hurricane Ian's winds combined with the storm surge chewed through homes and businesses, sparing nothing in its path. Massive devastation, something somewhat used to my first deployment actually was Hurricane Katrina. So um, seen a lot of hurricanes over the years. This certainly is a big, big disaster. Jennifer Brown is a canine search specialist with Florida Task Force 2. Her dogs, fierce and fame, are searching for human remains here on Fort Myers Beach. They've worked dozens of missions since Florida's Task Force 2 first arrived at Fort Myers Beach as the storm was still pounding this community. It was a good day. You know, I mean, again, it's like you, you know, you don't want to leave anybody behind. That's what we're here for. But then on the other hand, we didn't find anybody else. It's a good thing. A team of 80 from this task force has been busy crisscrossing a seven-mile stretch on the beach, working 24-7, going house to house, 
in search of survivors. We found a lot of residents who are still sheltering in place, who need some info, need, need some help just getting out or just where to get water, ice, food, and just even just giving that information to them is a huge help for them. It's no easy task given the scene here. Homes crumbled, smashed, and stacked on top of others. Businesses blown to pieces. This building used to be over there, across the street. It was moved by the sheer power of the wind and water. We had about uh, 60 medical calls, medical emergencies that we responded to with two people who actually went into cardiac arrest, stopped breathing, and those search and rescue personnel ended up performing CPR, able to get a pulse back and get them transported to a local hospital. The team rescued this elderly couple who were trapped in their home. The storm had washed away the entire ground floor of their two-story house. This is just one area of Fort Myers Beach where you can really see the destruction. Nothing is where it belongs. This laundry machine came from that laundromat or what's left of that laundromat over there. And in this whole area here, these were homes. But now those homes are over there. And just look at that level of destruction. They're up against the other homes, but they are shredded, crumpled. There is nothing left of them. This woman was rescued today. She has cancer and rode out the storm so she could continue her treatments nearby. It was rushing. It's like 30 miles per hour. It was pulling houses, roofs apart, literally. You could see them float by. We were sitting up in my bedroom watching all this debris go by. There is no power or water in this area, so anyone still at the beach is completely cut off from services. The search and rescue team has been using high water vehicles and front loaders to navigate through the debris as they continue to search for anyone trapped in the rubble. Task Force 2 has found human remains, but did not say how many bodies they've recovered. Bob and Rosemary Kopsack are some of the lucky ones. They lost everything inside their home, but were rescued today. Our best friend, we have not been able to contact him. He's 92, and he said he's not leaving the island, and I hope he did. His phone's out and so on. I, I've sent the police over to his home. Uh, oh, you haven't been able to reach him? Though. No. So many people, it seems, still unaccounted for leaving friends and loved ones to wonder if they made it out. It is quarter past five and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Truebridge. We're keen for your feedback. It feels like it's snowing almost everywhere today, so uh, are you snowed under? Let us know if you are. And actually, because we're in school holidays, I think earlier in the week we asked for your free school holidays acti- school holiday activities. But tell us what you used to do during your school holidays back in the day when you used to have them. Peter McElwain told us yesterday that he used to get sent up to Palmerston North to hang out with his cousin. They used to run around and cause mischief and beat each other up, basically. Sounds like a jolly old time. Anyway, you can text us 2101. You can tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. We're on Facebook and Instagram as well at firstup. But to Europe now, I'm joined from Sweden by our correspondent Anita purcell Sherland. Uh, Morena, Anita. Talo Falavanik. Fill us in on Ukraine. What's the latest? Well, Russia's pledged to retake annexed areas after Ukrainian advance. Now, the, the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, has told the BBC that Russia will retake areas of Ukraine that's currently retreating from. 
Speaking during a call with journalists, Peskov said the territories will be with Russia forever and they'll be returned. Now, of course, last week Russia annexed four Ukrainian provinces after self-styled uh, referendums roundly condemned by world leaders. And we'll, we'll shift to Denmark, Anita, because there's a general election that's been called there, right? And it seems as though the government's popularity has, well, t- taken a bit of a beating, taken a bit of a hit, really, over the culling of the country's mink population. Well, what we're talking about, we're talking about 15 million minks. Now, the election is to be held on the 1st of November. In June, a Danish parliament-appointed commission harshly criticised Frederiksen's government for its decision to cull in 2020 the millions of healthy mink to protect humans from a mutation of the coronavirus. Now, Denmark is the world's top mink fur exporter with 40% of global production, which mostly goes to China and Hong Kong. Now, Fredriksen, at the age of 44, became the country's youngest ever prime minister in 2019 after promising to improve welfare services. Now, recent polls show a near-dead heat between her social democratic minority governments supported by left-wing allies and uh, and the right-wing bloc. So it'll be interesting to see what will happen then. And we've seen this here, right? We're going to shift to France now. Uh, people cutting their hair, French women in particular, in support of women's rights in Iran. Fill us in on that. Well, the best-known names of French cinema, such as Juliette Binoche, Marion Coltillard, Isabel Ajani and Isabel Huppert, filmed themselves in a compilation video cutting their hair to support um, protests over the death of 22-year-old Maza Amini after her arrest by Iranian morality police. Now, the hair-cutting video appeared on Wednesday morning on the social media platforms of Instagram and Twitter, of which one of the hashtags is hashtag hair for freedom. Kurdish Maza Amini died in custody on the 16th of September, three days after her arrest for allegedly breaching Iran's strict rules for women on wearing hijab headscarves and modest clothing, which has sparked a wave of protests across Iran. Mm, And uh, we'll move on. A Dutch town has lost a court case seeking action by Twitter. You mentioned Twitter before, but this is slightly different. Uh, What's going on here? Well, this is about stopping the spread of a conspiracy theory saying that the town of Bodegrav in Reykjavik once hosted a satanic pedophile ring during the 1980s. Now, the, the unfounded reports about the town first circulated in 2020. The three men accused of instigating the Bodegraven story are currently in jail after being convicted in other court cases for incitement and making death threats to people, including Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Local town authorities had wanted all posts relating to the alleged events removed by Twitter. And in giving its judgment, the Hague District Court said Twitter had done enough to remove unlawful content and that wouldn't order Twitter to remove other tweets related to the stories from other accounts. Twitter argued it was impossible to create a good filter to find Bodegraven stories that wouldn't affect legal content. It's a proper European tour today because we're off to uh, Serbia. A quick (laughs) trip. Uh, Special police on Wednesday. They raided a makeshift camp, right, and and arrested, um, well, People smugglers, uh, money, took some money, found some arms. What's happening? 
Well, the raid in Srebski Kretstur by the Tisa River running along the border with Hungary involved a special police force which rounded up 200 migrants. Now, the police operation comes two days just after Serbia, Hungary and Austria agreed to a joint action to, uh, to curb an increased influx of migrants into the countries and further into Europe. Now, police said in a statement that some of those found in the camp were transferred to state-run facilities, while some have been taken before the prosecutors to face legal proceedings for the smuggling of people, weapons and drugs and for committing violent acts. Thanks, Anita. Anita Purcell-Sherland joining us there from Europe. It has just gone 21 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we'll catch up with the news from the Marlborough region in a moment with uh, our LDR reporter there, Maya Hart, the Deputy Prime Minister. He's on the show this morning as well to talk about the state of the economy, but also our ever-rising interest rates. Of course, the OCR hiked not unexpectedly again yesterday. Uh, and a New Zealand researcher asks whether degenerative brain diseases developed disproportionately by former rugby players might have something to do with our country's high suicide rates. Time for our twice-weekly look at news from regional New Zealand. Now, as promised this morning, we're in Marlborough, where Maya Hart has been looking at the very interesting contest taking place in the local body elections down there, although voter turnout, as is the case in most regions, remains disappointingly low. Yeah, it's looking a little low at the moment. I think a day ago it was about 32%, but our Māori ward, which is new this election, was sitting at about 15%. So I spoke to our elector officer and he kind of stressed that it's not too late, that it's actually... It's not too late to vote, but it's too late to post your votes and that people needed to go into the council or the Picton Library. Apparently, there's a rumour that you can take your voting ballots into into Bunnings, which isn't true. Uh, (laughs) So he was kind of saying to to make sure that you get your voting documents into the council. But yeah, it's looking well at the moment. The Bunnings warehouse (laughs) rumour. Where did that come from? I'm not too sure. I don't think he's too sure either. I think there's just a bit of confusion. And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's not as much hype as usual around this election. I'm not sure. Can't speculate. But maybe just people are taking it quite casual that they haven't quite got onto it yet. Yeah, yeah. So the suggestion was that, because of course you can post them in, well, you can post them in the post box, can't you? But the suggestion, of course, was that you could go into Bunnings and sort of lodge it there somehow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was the first I heard of it until I talked to him. So, yeah, well, maybe well, it was a... <laughs> yeah, while you're getting your sausage, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll move on. So the new council, though, when they are eventually voted in, they've got a pretty big mm-hmm. job on their hands, right? So so give us a rundown of the sorts of things they would need to tackle. Yeah, they do. And the things at the moment that obviously everyone's talking about is the central government reforms, so three waters, uh, local government reform, things like that. And, of course, in Marlborough, we've got issues with our roading following the recent rain event. So there's a lot of chat about just where that's going to be funded from um, and how we're going to fix the road because, obviously, it's going to cost millions. Yeah. Just to change tack completely, there's a stoush over the aquarium eco-world. Tell us about that. Yes. The stoush actually dates back to July last year when his lease wasn't renewed. And the High Court trial actually went through the court system the last couple of weeks. So his lease expired in July and he has maintained that he had a right 
the owner has maintained that he had a right to renew the lease after an offer was made back in 2015, but nothing was ever signed. So at the time, John Ruman, who's actually running for council too, <laughs> the owner, he kept going back to Port Marlborough to negotiate better terms, but under the impression he had the lease. And Port Marlborough said, well, no, that's not the case. We never signed anything. Yeah, that High Court trial wrapped up last week and they're just awaiting a judgment at the moment. So he's running for council. Is his council bid sort of being spurred by this, do you think? Or has he sort of always had aspirations and or run before? He said he's always had aspirations. The port is owned by the council as well. But yeah, it sounds like from what he's saying, it's completely separate. Maya Hart joining us there from beautiful Marlborough. Right, joining us now from the business team for business time is Giles Beckford. Morning, Giles. Nisambula. Look, uh, uh, yeah, Fijian Language Week. Exactly. Of course. I, I thought saw, you'd forgotten. I saw Wallace Chapman had a, a, a delicious looking uh, raw fish dish on the second floor yesterday. Didn't get to try it. There might be some in the fridge. I don't know how good it is. Yeah, I, a, a I, day I, old, it might be a bit dicky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it, but I'll, um, but I'll embrace it some other way. Uh, look, an, another one of these, I don't know, are, are they indexes? Index? In, uh, indeed. Looking at New Zealand and its livability compared to the rest of the world, where do give we me, rank? Give me a good reason why you would want to live in New Zealand or why you might regard New Zealand, let's pluck a number, as the 28th best country in the world to live in. D- 20, you're is you're sort of, struggling, aren't you? Uh, and, and, like, at 28... Are you celebrating 28? Is it commiserations (laughs) over the fact you're 28? We're we're in Uh, the queue. It's about our digital quality of life. Oh, okay. Right. How good is our broadband? How good is our internet internet connections? Affordability of digital connections. Broadband speeds. um, uh, Infrastructure in general. Uh, so there's a, a outfit that has uh, crunched all these together um, based on criteria which are applied by the United Nations and some of their agencies. So they've done it as a worldwide survey. Top of the uh, list, the best country in the world to live in, in a digital sense, is Israel, apparently. New Zealand is 28. Uh, we're best in this part of the world. Apparently, our broadband uh, is better than Australia's, uh, although it's not as cheap. Um, Our mobile connections are also better. So Mm. there's another one in the Trans-Tasman rivalry to put in there. But I just thought slightly odd to, you know, sort of rank countries as the best place in the world in the digital quality sort of way. And I'm just thinking, aren't there more important uh, criteria to apply as to why we'd want to live here and why we would promote it as being the best place to live in? I got in the mail yesterday uh, a a letter, a letter, a, a notice from Mr. Musk and Starlink. Goodness me! Yeah. You are on it, don't you? Try, trying to uh, trying to sign. Uh, it's, it's sort of his super fast broadband service, isn't yeah. it? It had some quote from it. It was so strange. It had some quote on it on the back from Bill in South Canterbury. It's the best broadband I've ever used. <laughs> uh, you know, and I was like, is yeah. Mr. Mask really talking to Bill in South yeah. Canterbury? Well, I don't know. well, look, Elon gets around, uh, and he probably needs a few more dollars since he's decided to buy, go ahead and buy Twitter um, and avoid all those costly legal bills. Yeah. So it might well be that he and Bill just have formed a, 
you know, a, a really good relationship. I mean, it does happen. Yeah. It does happen. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Uh, thanks, Giles. Giles Beckford. Jo- that took a funny turn, didn't it? Giles Beckford, Beckford joining us uh, there for our business news. There'll be more business news and morning report at 10 to 7. And while we're on business, uh, let's turn to the markets. Your New Zealand dollar is worth today 56.94 US cents, 88 Australian cents, 57.75 euro cents, 50.6 British pence, 4.03 yuan, and 82.4 Japanese yen. Right. Uh, Treasury's audit sticking with numbers of the government's books released yesterday found things in a better state than had been anticipated given the massive COVID spread and global volatility affecting markets. Final accounts for the year ended June show a deficit of $9.7 billion compared with forecasts in May of a deficit of more than $19 billion and the previous year's $4.6 billion shortfall. I discussed this with the Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. I started by asking him about the Reserve Bank raising interest rates yesterday yet again. Yeah, look, it's, you know, we have had very low inflation for a very long time and obviously low interest rates that have gone with that. We are in a different part of the financial cycle at the moment and this is happening everywhere in the world. You know, people will be aware of of the fact that we've got a global inflation spike. Um, Central banks like the Reserve Bank around the world are acting to bring inflation back down. That means lifting the official cash rate and that does flow through to, to mortgage rates. So I absolutely acknowledge for some people this these rises of we'll see them paying more. Um, a little bit of it's already been priced in for this latest rise, so we haven't yet seen much movement from the retail banks. But it is, you know, for New Zealanders a message that our overall economic situation is sound and strong. We're in a good position to deal with the global, you know, economic headwinds that are there. But at an individual household level, I absolutely get the fact that this will be putting some pressure on finances. Mm, you you might have seen the uh, the Kiwi Bank chief economist, uh, Jared Kerr, basically pointing out you've got an 800k mortgage, you would have paid 20k a year normally, but you're now paying 44. Obviously, that's quite the jump. So, uh, how are people on normal salaries supposed to cover that? Of course, a lot of people aren't getting pay rises in the current climate. Oh, well, I'm not sure about that, actually. We are starting to see um, pretty significant wage growth across the economy. We have seen, you know, periods of wage uh, restraint, but um, the settlements that are coming through, we've seen that overall wages, you know, medium wages increased by 8%. So that stayed a little bit ahead of inflation. But look, this will certainly affect discretionary spending in a lot of households. Um, people will be, you know, making decisions about what they can now do outside of paying their mortgage. Um, that is unfortunate the reality of of the system that we have Uh, but equally on the other side of the coin we want to see inflation come down it really affects you know people particularly those on low and middle incomes we've stepped in to help with uh, you know cost of living assistance be it the fuel excise duty cut or the cost of living payment or the other supports that we continue to provide Um, again the New Zealand economy is in a good place we'll get through this uh, but it certainly is going to put some pressure on household budgets for a time. Yeah, of course. Also yesterday, uh, there was Treasury's audit of the government books um, showing a lower than expected deficit of $9.7 billion, I believe it was, uh, you know, driven in part by higher than forecast tax takes. So why not give people some cash back in the form of a, a tax cut? 
Yeah, look, I mean, those books were were a really good testament to the way that New Zealand's got through COVID and, and even in a period where we, we did have to spend significant amounts of money to support businesses and households, we did come through with that, that lower deficit. The truth is there is still a deficit, and so it's not a time to be throwing a lot of money around. We still have a $9 billion deficit. Um, we are in a very volatile time, and globally, you know, I know a lot of New Zealanders are quite anxious about what they see happening internationally. We do have to take a, a cautious and a careful approach, and I certainly don't think this is the time for tax cuts to go to the wealthiest New Zealanders, as, as National would propose. We've seen in the UK the reaction of financial markets to that. So this the time for being careful, banking that, you know, better result than we expected and looking to the future to, to be able to continue a balanced approach. Just changing tax slightly, obviously, we've got Chloe Swarbrick's um, alcohol harm reduction bill, minimisation bill, I think it's called. Uh, where are you at with it on its current form? Yeah, look, for me personally, I, I certainly understand the importance of the issues that Chloe's raised in the bill. Um, the first part of it's about local alcohol plans. And when the Sale of Liquor Act was changed in 2012, there was real optimism that this would make for, for good, appropriate local decision making about where and how alcohol was sold and um, and you know people's access to it. The the goal there hasn't quite been achieved, and there's certainly been some appeals made on local alcohol plants that seem a bit specious. And so I think there's you know there's that issue is one that that can and should be addressed. The second part of the bill is on alcohol sponsorship, and again, long term, I don't think it's sustainable for for alcohol sponsorship to play such a part around sport. But I want to make sure that we work through the changes methodically here. Uh, the money that's involved in sponsoring um, sport affects community sport as much as it affects professional support. We've got to make sure that if we are going to be seeing that removed, we know what's replacing it. And I want to keep working on those issues. So at this stage, I'm not in a position where I can support the bill as it stands, but I do think that the work that underlies it's important. And I know Kitty Allen, as the Minister of Justice, has got a work programme on a number of these issues. We're also looking at it from a sport perspective. But when you look at the, I suppose, the funding take from alcohol advertising, there's plenty of evidence to show that it, certainly at a club level, in a club context, there isn't a huge take from alcohol advertising. So are your concerns around the professional games or where do you sit? Well, it's a bit of both because, um, you know, the, the sponsorship at, at the more professional level often flows through to the community sector. There was someone from one rugby union who wrote to me recently who said, look, you know, the money that we get up at up at the elite level is what flows through to the community sector, and that comes from, in many cases, the alcohol sponsorship. Also, while the quantum of money might not sound a lot for an individual club, it might be all of their sponsorship. So we just want to work our way through that to make sure we, we, we find a sustainable way forward that means that clubs aren't so reliant on alcohol, that sports aren't so reliant on alcohol. I think it's important work. I want to get it right. And so Chloe's had a bill drawn, all power to her to, to, pro, to want to progress it. But as a government, we want to make sure we know where we're heading when we make a change like this. How far do you think we go with these issues? Because, of course, alcohol is one thing and we know the, well, the damage it can cause and the issues with 
with overexposure, but of course you've got uh, sports betting that is fairly well entrenched, certainly in the professional game now. Uh, fast food advertising, uh, I can remember being a kid and playing club rugby and you know your player of the day thing would be a McDonald's voucher or something like that. How far do we go with stripping these uh, things back from our, our sports, uh, whether they be professional or amateur? Yeah, look, I think, you know, it, it is a really valid question because in the end, sponsorship, commercial sponsorship of sport is is a reality. Um, you know, it's the way in which we have professional sport. It's the way in which many, many different codes can operate. I think when it comes to alcohol, you know, there is, there is evidence around the demonstrable harm that's caused by excessive alcohol consumption. Um, and also, you know, its alignment with sport is sometimes a little incongruous in terms of its health effects. Um, you know, I, I'd put that in a slightly different category than some of those other uh, things that you raise, but these are questions that will inevitably be asked. And we, we dealt with smoking many years ago. It feels to me like alcohol is almost the next cab off the rank. Uh, that's the issue that's at play here. We're doing work on it, but um, we certainly don't have any plans around any of the other matters at this stage. Mm. Uh, just staying with sport, you may have seen the study out of Scotland about uh, degenerative brain diseases in rugby players. They're 2.5 times more likely to suffer degenerative brain diseases and 15 times more likely to get motor neuron uh, disease than the general public. Also, there's the increased risk, risk of Parkinson's there as well. Uh, do you think we're doing enough in New Zealand when it comes to, uh, well, making sure our players, professional uh, or otherwise, are being looked after? I think more and more has been done, and that's completely appropriate. Um, you know, codes, especially rugby, are now proactive in, in, in looking at the science, looking at the research. We've seen the changes that many will be aware of with head injury assessments when, whenever there is the prospect of that, that there are automatic stand-down periods within community and, and school rugby. And I know that New Zealand rugby has been working with world rugby around the studies that they're doing into, into the head impacts and what can be done to protect um, more head gear has been used. Used. And I think that's entirely appropriate. I mean, I too played rugby to a certain level and, and I, I remember guys getting concussion and nothing happening at all and they'd show up next week. That wouldn't happen today. That's a good advance. But I think the more we understand, the more we can move to mitigate it and, and make sure that we don't see these tragic results from the study uh, carrying into the future. And of course, uh, Women's Rugby World Cup kicking off this weekend. Eden Park is inching towards capacity for this triple header. Uh, you must be pretty excited. Oh, I'm so excited for this tournament. You know, the second of three major women's sporting World Cups, we had cricket, we've got football next year. Um, the rugby is going to be a great um, tournament. Um, the Black Ferns, you know, have, as everyone else, had major disruptions over the last few years with covid they seem to be coming back into a bit of form, but just to see a world-class tournament like this in New Zealand showcased for, for women's rugby and women's sport, it's going to be a magic period of time, and I really hope the Black Ferns can, can get up and, and we see them in the final. Are you coming up? I'll be coming up for some games. I'm unable to go to the opening one. I've got a, a long-standing uh, wedding to attend, but I'll be, I'll be one of those terrible wedding guests who's constantly checking the score. Yeah, that guy at the wedding. That is Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. It is 
17 minutes to 6. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come in the wake of a major report on the rate of degenerative brain diseases suffered by former rugby players, one researcher asks whether this could have something to do with our country's high suicide rates. And we hear from the partner of former All Black Carl Heyman about living with dementia at the age of just 42. Professionals of Morning Reporter up after six and for a very quick preview of uh, our flagship news programme is Corin Dan. Is it snowing in the studio yet? Not quite. I haven't taken the puffer jacket off yet. That was very cold going in this morning. A uh, little bit of snow where I'm from in Karori, up in the hills there. Just a skerrick around the traps. I uh, don't know how much of it's settled, but there was a little bit last night. Uh, certainly that is the focus for the show this morning, uh, touching base, particularly in the south, where there has been uh, quite a bit of snow settling in places like Dunedin, uh, right through the central uh, South Island, and uh, maybe in Christchurch. We'll check in. There's still a bit of this um, cold snap to go, so we'll be right across that this morning. We'll also have a good look at the government's books which were uh, opened up a little bit yesterday with the financial accounts through to the end of June uh, so the year's fiscal is looking pretty good but um, plenty of headaches too for uh, Grant Robertson inflation uh, being the, probably the biggest one because we also had the official cash rate out yesterday which was hiked again so those sort of things uh, fit nicely together we'll have more on both of those we'll also look at uh, Elon Musk Back on back in the game to buy Twitter. Mm. What on earth is going on there? Yeah. Uh, and F Boy Island too. Um, oh we're just going to look at some how this show has gone down overseas because <laughs> uh, yeah. it is franchised, I believe. Uh, so we've got a foreign uh, commentator who's uh, from Wired who's going to comment uh, just on some of the reaction about this show. And it's gone really it. well here so far, hasn't it? Yeah, well, it's, if not. they were looking for publicity, they've been successful. Well, yeah, but I'm not sure if that old um, old saying is correct in this case about any publicity. No. Any good publicity. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Hey, uh, thanks, Corin. Morning report up in about 12 minutes' time. All right, a romantic date paddleboarding on Boston's Charles River took a bad turn last weekend when a smartphone fell into the water. One man's effort to dive and retrieve his phone turned up more than he bargained for when he picked up not his but those belonging to 11 others. Yes, you heard that right, 11 smartphones. And as Brandon Truitt reports, the story still has a happy ending. John Anastos and Jennifer Abramson are still figuring each other out. The two most recently met Tuesday for an evening on the Charles. It was their third date. Suggested the two paddleboards taking them out on the Charles at night and look at the Boston lights. It was all going so well until it was time to dock here in Cambridge. John's phone got a little close to the edge. I don't know if it was with my hand, my foot, my leg, but while I was getting my paddleboard out, kicked my phone into the water and just watched it sink. And it was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And so began those moments of contemplation. We all know that feeling, to take action or just let it go. Using paddles to determine the water was about 15 feet deep. John went for it. He jumped into the Charles. You don't just hit the bottom. It's kind of more like slowly you ooze into the bottom. <laughs> if he had lived here in the 80s and 90s, he would not have jumped in. On his first jump, John felt two phones. He did six more jumps and recovered a total of 11. It wasn't until the next morning when John thought to see if any of the phones would work. Plugging them in one by one, 
three of them did turn on. And using the phone's emergency contact information, he started tracking down the original owners. I remember it. It's obviously a little embarrassing, especially considering where I work. <laughs> One of them belongs to Deb Laufer. She works for Paddle Boston and lost her phone last month in the same spot John did. Hers was in a watertight bag. Unclear if she's more impressed that the phone still works or by how it was recovered. Yeah, surprised. Surprised that anyone was willing to, to dive in off that dock, for sure. For his part, John guesses dozens more devices are down there. After all that work, he never found his own phone. And in case anyone's down there... Yeah, it's a Samsung with me and two little kids. A date night with an unexpected dive, fishing out phones, and securing the fourth date. Former rugby players are two and a half times more likely to develop degenerative brain disease and 15 times more likely to get motor neuron disease than the general public. These were the findings of a major new study from Glasgow University and Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, which looked at more than 400 Scottish former international players, compared with some 1,200 members of the public. The study, which has been published in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry, also found the four Former rugby players were three times more likely to develop Parkinson's disease. Former All Black prop Carl Heyman played around 450 matches during his career and believes that's what led to his diagnosis of early onset dementia. Here's the 42-year-old partner, Kiko Matthews, explaining what it's like for Carl day to day. Every day is a struggle for him because he just, like the brain just doesn't work at the same speed as you or I does like shopping is you know on a good day shopping is painful or he just gets super tired if he does a full day's work difficult to sort of process information and particularly sort of stress and emotional things quite difficult to process the brain definitely accesses anger a lot easier than it would a, a normal person and that is like part of how the brain works with this injury sleep has been an issue and concentration headaches so you kind of have to uh, we've got you know there's sort of history and, and stuff with addiction there's you know there's just a, a plethora of symptoms that all roll in and you get a bad day when they're all involved and it's horrible and then you get a day when it's all quiet and you know life can be can be pretty normal and on top of that you've got like depression and anxiety as well which doesn't really kind of add nicely to the mix so it's not a lot of fun some days she says the report confirmed what she and Carl have known for a while now. It's great that it's come out. I mean, I've known since Carl's been diagnosed. It's obvious. You, you kind of think, you, you look back, you think, how do people not even think this is a possibility? Like your head, I think Carl's played 440 professional games. That doesn't include the non-professional ones or the training. And you think, well, of course there's going to be a, a consequence of your head is getting, your little squidgy brain is getting whacked against your skull on a kind of 11-month-a-year basis. So, I mean, this research is just the people who are trying to deny that this is an issue, they can't really deny it now. It's like there's some pretty good evidence that this is a, this is a problem. And then that means that people can make their own decisions whether they play and parents can make their decisions whether they want their children to be playing to such a level and I think that is really important that people know the outcome or, or the increased outcome of playing the sport. 
That was Kiko Matthews. She's the partner of former All Black Carl Heyman. And we are going to stick with this theme because for one New Zealand scientist, the study has raised another big question, and that's could our country's consistently high rate of suicide be linked to the number of people who play rugby and other contact sports? Patria Hume is Professor of Human Performance at the Auckland University of Technology, and she joins us now. Uh, Morena, Patria, sorry for getting your name wrong there. Um, Can we start on this hypothesis? Explain to us this, well, potential link between the rugby we play as a nation and, to be frank, our distressingly high rates of suicide. Yes, well, unfortunately, I'm not the first to think about this link. So it has been indicated in America with football and other countries. And so the hypothesis is that when you have these repeated head impacts, you end up with damage to the cells of the brain. And this can lead to depression and to dementia. Now, we know that depression is a really high risk factor for suicide. And we know in studies, there's a recent one from Yale University students looking at, you know, two times the increased risk of suicide uh, if you have dementia. And so my concern is that we've now got, you know, a really high rate of suicide in New Zealand for young people. We've got a high Uh, participation rate of rugby in New Zealand of young people. And so we don't have any evidence yet because there's no studies, but I'm just raising the question. You know, we also know that alcohol use is quite high in, in rugby, and we know that alcohol use increases the risk of suicide and also dementia. There's studies in France that show alcohol use highly increases the risk of dementia. So there's a lot of concern that mm. we need to be looking at. Mm. Uh, we just heard from Carl Heyman's partner, of course, the former uh, New Zealand prop, and the difficulties, I suppose you would say, he struggled with as a result of, of his early onset dementia. Uh, are you familiar with other cases like that which might support this this theory, this suggestion? Yes, there are more and more cases coming forward. And obviously the Scottish study did show that there were, you know, two times um, increased risk of dying from dementia, uh, three times more Parkinson's disease than the general population. You know, the question that we raise is, well, what can we do about it? We know that we need to reduce the impacts to the head. And we know that we want to improve participation in sport because it's got good social um, and physical benefits. So, you know, we've kind of got this conundrum. And so it's it's getting the balance right, participation in healthy living activities, but reducing the risk of this long-term brain health damage. Mm. Uh, just very briefly, Patrick, we've got about a minute left, but in terms of where these sorts of issues rank on the on the uh, conscience, I suppose you you could say of the of the rugby establishment, do you think these issues are on their radar? And well, on Absolutely. their radar and enough. Let me put it that way. Absolutely, you know, New Zealand rugby in particular is has been concerned with player health for a very long time. If you think about rugby smart and the mm. tackling techniques, you know, they're they're really interested in it. So is world rugby. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, enough being done, though? I would like to see more. I'd like to see alcohol sponsorship taken away. You know, Sir Graham Lowe has been really big on that in rugby yeah. league. So, yeah, a lot of things could be done. Hmm. Hey, thank you very much. That's uh, Patria Hume from AUT there on this issue of, well, uh, head injuries in rugby and potentially their link to our high rates of suicide. Not a lot of evidence there at the moment, but she's raising the question uh, and the potential link. Uh, just before we go, a little bit of feedback. 15 centimetres of snow outside my front door at ground level at Dunedin. Hey, thanks, Roger, for that. Stay warm down there. And uh, Tahi Christchurch, of course, Medina. Morena, or we've had snow and more importantly, power in Hallsville. Well, that's good. Uh, We'll see you tomorrow.